Welcome back to Evolving Door Podcast. It's been a little while since our last episode, so apologies for that. I hope you've been really well despite the crazy times we're in. This is episode seven, and I'm very uh, excited to introduce you to Jean Greaser, uh, who also has a spiritual name, Vishaka Devidasi. She's an amazing lady. I've had the good fortune to meet her uh, many, many times over the years. And she's always been very kind to me and I've always found her to be incredibly wise uh, and generous. And she's currently the first female temple president at the Bhaktivedanta Manor, which is a beautiful kind of country house and temple just outside London in Watford. It's a gorgeous house that used to belong to George Harrison from the Beatles and he uh, gave it to the Hare Krishna people in the 70s. And it's well worth a visit when uh, when lockdown finishes. We talk about her growing up in the 60s and the crazy time that that was. She was really into photography, very talented. She got a book commissioned by with a really famous photographer, very young. And she went to India with her, her then uh, boyfriend to um, document the Hare Krishna movement. And they went and they sort of experienced all the amazing color and and sort of sights and sounds of India. Um, She was quite skeptical uh, at first, as you'll hear in particular, um, what appeared to be discrimination against women. So let's dive straight in. If you haven't given us a review yet, um, it's so encouraging for us to hear and to see. Uh, So please go over uh, to Apple Podcasts now and give us a rating and a review. Uh, or just reach out to us and let us know what you're enjoying about the podcast. Okay, let's jump in and let's meet Jean. Hi, Jean. Love it to see you. Hi, Robbie. Thank you for having me. I've been reading your book, um, which you very kindly gave us when we when you came to visit us a year or two ago. Five years, eleven months, and a lifetime of unexpected love. And I have to say, I am so loving it. Oh, I'm, thank you. Yeah, it's, so happy it's, to, happy to hear that. Yeah, it's genuinely brilliant uh, in many ways. It's made me laugh out loud <laughs> quite a few times. <laughs> Obviously, having shared some of the uh, same experiences to it in some ways, which we'll get to later, I could really relate to some of it, and it was very, very funny. You've gone on such a journey throughout your life. As a young person growing up, you didn't really fit in so much, or at least you felt like that. Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think prior to high school, everything was going very well. It was high school that I felt very much an outsider quite suddenly, like from the first day. I didn't have the right shoes. I didn't have the right clothes. I didn't have the right jargon. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so I felt very alienated, completely taken by surprise. I did not expect that. I was in a quite a well-to-do neighborhood, but my parents were not so well-to-do. And plus, they didn't emphasize clothing so much and makeup and hairdo. Whereas the other ladies, the other girls, you could say, in the high school were very much into those things. And so they'd look at me like I was some kind of alien, (laughs) which really pierced. I laugh at it now, but it really pierced the heart. And I would feel very much left out, overlooked, even made fun of. Mm. So it's quite quite an uh, isolating experience, quite a lonely experience. And I was always seeing what's wrong with me because especially at that age, there's such a strong desire to fit in, to be accepted by your peers. I think as we grow up, we're less or more callous to those things, but especially those teenage years, somehow it's this herd mentality. And if you don't fit in, you feel so vulnerable and so hurt and so weak and so 
your self-esteem is really smashed. Except that once you see people that do fit into these cliques, they're also very insecure. You know, once you see past the kind of barrier that they build, then you see how they're very ready to step on other people, to advance themselves, and very ugly aspects of human nature. So any way you turn it, I think high school was a traumatic experience for me being on the outside and for those people that I thought were on the inside. Mm. And you mentioned uh, you had a friend, Lucy, and there was another friend, and you kind of um, caught yourself in an uncomfortable situation where you kind of betrayed one friend because she thought she was taking your other friend away. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and then what you thought about that afterwards, how it made you feel? Yeah. Well, Lucy and I became friendly because she was also on the outside. She was from Colombia and didn't speak English very well and didn't know how to fit in. She was also not part of the upper echelon, the well-to-do part of our town. So she and I became fast friends. We're still friends to this day. And there was another uh, girl our age who was a very strict Jewish, she was very strictly following the Jewish tradition, who wanted, also wanted to become part of our little group. But unfortunately, I was very envious that this new girl would take Lucy away from me. So instead of welcoming her, which you know, I, I do regret to this day, I thought I'll push her away so I'll have Lucy to myself. This is kind of a competitive nature. And so the result was that this other girl was very hurt and I felt wretched. I just felt wretched for doing to her what had been done to me by this larger clique in the high school. So it was a very ugly time, but I, mm. you know, it was very, very rich as far as learning lessons of life. How do you think it impacted on you going forwards? Well, I, I really wanted never to do that again, never to hurt others as I had been hurt. So that, that was yeah, very moving for my heart, I would say, to try to welcome everyone without discrimination, without depending so much on these externals, because the important thing is the heart. It's interesting, isn't it? Because oftentimes when we experience pain or rejection or hurt, we do develop empathy. But but like like you found in that situation, it can go either way. Sort of sometimes it can make you also hurt, and that saying hurt people hurt people. But I think over time, as we get older, it, it helps us develop our empathy, having been hurt, doesn't it? Oh, I think so. I think so very much because immediately you can feel the pain that that person is feeling, which mm. is. Although it's completely internal, it's very sharp pain, very piercing pain. Mm. You were, um, it seems, very ambitious. You went on to university after uh, high school? Yeah, I went to the university, the Rochester Institute of Technology, majoring in photojournalism. I loved when you said you got in there and then you had you saw the other girls who had also got in there and they had the same shoes as you <laughs> um, compared to those same shoes didn't didn't cut it in high school but then you when you got to this place they all actually had the shoes yeah. they all had hiking boots with straps <laughs> ready to go you know through the mountains through the forests so I felt yeah. immediately I felt I'll be fine here I'm with my own people I found yeah. my family yeah and funnily enough, you it's, it was quite amazing how you described it. You, I guess you were 19 or 20. You walked in and you saw John, who became your husband. Just uh, tell us about that. 
the first year in college, I had done a project on close-up photography. So I took that project, term project, to a publisher in New York, and they liked it. To they wanted to make it into a book. Hmm. So then I was set with this task of making this term project into a book. I was very focused on that, working the weekends after school and so forth. And our professor, one of our professors knocked on my door. He lived in the same house that I did and said that we're now going to hang a show at the student union. Can you come and help? We need some help. And I really did not want to go because I was focused on this project. But I thought, hey, he's my teacher. I have to try to get on his good side. So I went to the student union, which was uh, just a huge concrete block mixed in with lots of glass windows. And just I went through the revolving doors and there on the far end, which is quite far away, it was a large space, was this young man that I was immediately drawn to, which was something very unusual because I didn't have crushes. I didn't even much believe in crushes, but I was drawn to him. And he also was there to start hanging, helping to hang this show. And hmm. So we hung it together. And the first thing I asked him was, uh, are you a freshman? Because I hadn't seen him the previous year, so I assumed he was. And he said, no, actually, I'm a graduate student in photography. So I thought, well, he's a very eligible person here. I loved uh, <laughs> how, you, how you said it in the book that you, you were kind of, uh, when he said he wasn't a freshman, you were like, oh, no, if he's, old, if he's younger than me, then he won't be interested in me, potentially. That was clever. funny. It's funny, as a young person, all the, all, the, all the kind of things that go through your head, isn't it? Did you ask him out? Did he? How did you kind of get together? Let's see. Well, we hung the show together, and then he came over to my place to visit me, and then he moved in with his stereo equipment. Yeah. We became, we became roommates from that point on. He had an old VW bus, so we used to go around Rochester on the weekends sometime to get a break from school, and right. our relationship just grew. I know you became very, um, I guess, successful, even though you didn't, well, you did pursue it for your whole life, but you know, uh, from a commercial point of view, you got a book commissioned. You got a, a contract, right? Yeah, yeah. That book came out: photomacography, art, and techniques, and it had a forward by Beaumont Newhall, who at that time was a photographic historian, quite well known, and also by uh, W. Eugene Smith, who at that time was a, his name was a household name. He was considered one of the ten best photojournalists in the world. So for someone who's 19, that, that's pretty awesome, right, in one sense? Yeah, my parents were thrilled. I thought I was on a great trajectory to uh, do something amazing. Amazing. And you, you said your Aunt Ethel, how did you get Did She's the one who kind of got you interested in photography, or was that just uh, joined the dots later on? So, yeah, when, once uh, Christmas she gave me a bounty, brownie box camera, mm. which uh, at that time was very popular, and I just took to it. I just loved it, being able to record things. And then eventually I was developing my own film, my own prints. I changed my, uh, my bedroom into a, uh, a dark room. And I was thrilled by the whole process. I took pictures of everything that moved and didn't move. <laughs> and this is the 60s, right? Yes. So what was the time like? Um, 
you know, I guess Kennedy got assassinated in the 60s and there was a lot of um, unrest and civil rights and that kind of stuff. Were you involved with that kind of thing? Yeah, very much so. I was also photographing at that time, but I would participate in the civil rights movements because that was also as it is now. It was also very prominent at that time. And also against the war in Vietnam, there was a tremendous push to end that horrible war, really unnecessarily violent, murderous war. So I was involved in both those things, both as a demonstrator and as a photographer. I would do that regularly, be chanting on the streets. Mm. But it really, it really hurt me to see how the black people, this group of people was treated so unfairly just because of their skin color. It seemed just crazy to me. Isn't it amazing how, you know, yourself and obviously many others at the time kind of really seemed to get that. Um, and obviously various um, things have improved, um, but how here we are again, you know, what are we now? Jesus. Um, Excuse me, but uh, 60s, we were talking about nearly 60 years later. And, um, and it's still kind of, in one sense, not really changed in people's hearts that much. Mm. What, what, how does that make you feel as a young person who was probably full of um, hope at that time that we could have a fairer world and a better world and, and so on? Yeah, well, you could say it's uh, really bubble popping because you do have so many ideals, you do have so many high hopes, and it seems so obvious and so necessary. And yet, as you say, there are people that are just entrenched in their position and uh, very often are not well informed and resist changing their position, re resist information, and more than likely want to protect what they have. So it's also fear-based. So, yeah, it's... It's uh, one could become a bit skeptical, a bit mm. even cynical, as one sees the lack of change, how mm. how entrenched people are. It looked like you were set to have a um, a very glowing career in photography. You were you were working with those two esteemed photographers. I, I, I you mentioned you were standing on a ladder at a Peter um, is it Peter Oliver shoot. And, and it was a fashion shoot, and you had a bit of a, a moment. Uh, what, what was it going through ahead of that time? Yeah, well, Peter Oliver was a very successful commercial photographer, and he had took me on as an assistant. Right? So I would do the needful, and on this particular shoot, it was for a very luxurious towel. So we had this model, this internationally famous model who had this towel and she was as if she was drying herself off after a shower. So my responsibility was to drop some kind of uh, viscous water on her. It looked like water, but it was not water. It just stuck to her body as if it was drops of water. Doing this from a ladder. And I just had this moment where I thought, this is crazy. You know, we're just trying to get people to buy these things that they don't really need all these artificial uh, arrangements that, that just delude people into thinking that this is a wonderful product. And this woman, you know, she's, she's gorgeous by those standards, but meanwhile, she's underweight, she's full of anxiety. She's overwhelmed by a competitive, uh, envious spirit. You know, I thought, <laughs> again, the bubble popped, like this is, uh, 
a, a glimpse of insanity. Mm. And was it him that had the girlfriend who was a model, but you you had to keep uh, sort of pretending that uh, you were doing something else because she would get jealous if other models came in? Yes. Yeah, he, he had trouble hiring other models, but he had to hire other models. Otherwise, the advertising directors wouldn't choose him because they know, oh, he only picks one model. They want variety. They want specific models. And so when he hired other models, we all had to kind of protect this, the shooting situation so that his girlfriend didn't realize, oh, he's with, he's hired somebody else besides me. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a tangle. It's a difficult, tangle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I remember as well that age, um, there, there's a lot of, um, pressure on you to not only to look and fit in look a certain way but also to kind of figure out what you're going to do next and to be successful at it and all kinds of pressures isn't there that that are on young people even now um, now people talk about they talk about it more find your purpose but i think those of us that have always been kind of thinkers or searchers or whatever we're also thinking what, what like what's it all about? You know, like what, you know, what's the bigger picture to this? And you, you mentioned in the book that even at age 10, I think it was, you asked your mom, what happens after I die? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you remember what she said? <laughs> yeah. She was saying uh, nothing happens. You're cremated and you're, or you're buried one or the other, but nothing happens beyond that. In other words, death was the end. Mm. And though for me, that's, you're working so hard, spending money, earning money. You know, why? What's the, what's the point? It was a very unsatisfying answer. You really want something more, something more meaningful, something more lasting. Mm. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because um, in one sense, people could say, well, even if that is the end and that's it, then the joy is just to relish the moments and the the now and all of that but it still does seem like a very bizarre thing doesn't it that you where we start we have this period and like that's it it's strange like the, the 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 mind boggles with trying to understand how that could be even though theoretically some people could say what it, it could be um but you um as a young person were, were quite uh atheistic i, I think I, I i was as well and i love i love your skepticism actually you know I, it's right the book i actually really like even now as a person who ha has faith and i know you do as well um i still really like the skepticism it's kind of refreshing in a way <laughs> it's, it's um, very it's very deep <laughs> yeah because it's um but it's sort of um it's refreshing because I think um, we'll get onto it later. How you actually came to to have have faith, because it it um, it means that then if you do become kind of convinced, it's you you had a all the red lights to stop you you know crashing over the cliff. You know what I mean? It's kind of it's I don't know. I found it very reassuring. It was it was quite nice. Um, so you and um, John, well John, I think initially. Uh, gets invited over to India to do a, a photographic project of the Hare Krishnas, right? Is that right? Well, he invited himself. He decided <laughs> to do his, his master's thesis on the Hare Krishna people. Okay. He was attracted by the singing and the dancing and the, the apparent joy that he saw from the devotees. 
Yeah. He saw them in New York on the streets. And then he learned that they, uh, a small group was going from the West to India with the leader of the Hare Krishna movement. And he thought this is a great time to start my thesis, my master's thesis. So he went over just a few months after those devotees arrived and he joined them in Surat, which is a place in Gujarat state. And he was writing to me from there. It was amazing what was going on. I couldn't believe it. So it became very exotic and also very attractive situation. Then he also went to the Kumbh Mela, which is every 12 years and millions, 30 million people come to celebrate a religious festival on the confluence of the rivers there in Allahabad. And so that also was just so far out what he was describing. So when he wrote to me suggesting that I go to India, I was eager to go just because it was such a far out place from his letters, the way he was describing it in his letters. Mm. And I liked you, you sort of, because you do, particularly in the book uh, at that age, you know, and I, I I know you now. You are you are quite organized and sort of sensible. I would say you found yourself on a plane going to India, and you hadn't you hadn't maybe told him. So you were just going to actually land there. Uh, was that uh, what happened? <laughs> well, what happened was he he knew the expected arrival date, but the flight stopped in Brussels, and they were, had some technical troubles with the plane. So we were delayed in Brussels. They put us up in a hotel. And finally, when the plane was ready to fly, I realized I hadn't informed him because it was just, I don't know, I was just spaced out. I got very, very sick with diarrhea. So yeah, we were flying from Brussels to Bombay, which is now called Mumbai. And I thought, gee, he's the only person I know there and he doesn't know when I'm arriving and I don't know <laughs> what to do when I get there and wow, what's gonna happen next? But he, he'd figured it out, right? He was there to, to greet yeah. you, right? Yeah, I guess he was looking somehow. He, he looked, of course, there was mm. no web at that time, no internet. But mm. perhaps the airline informed him. I never actually asked him, but he was there. Perhaps John and you, I don't know if you were on the same page, that he seemed perhaps more drawn to the content. But you sort of were looking at it as a, a project or a like you were photographing it, you were there for a bit, you were going to do the task, and then and then perhaps, but he's certain, I loved many times, he definitely wasn't going to get involved. Um, and I loved I loved this bit. I wanted to just read it. I thought it was so funny. Um, where you were um, going to the temple and, and meeting the devotees, and they would uh, go in and, and bow down um, flat, and all of these unusual things that, from a Western perspective, I guess we wouldn't be so used to seeing. So you said, I thought the Hare Krishna devotees were a bizarre, irrelevant, and unnecessary social fluke, um, which I thought was, was very funny. And then you said they, they went into the temple room and they bowed down flat. And I thought, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. And then uh, one of the temple um, sort of leader, uh, he, he, you were with him in the office. I think it was in Mumbai. And he was telling you about the philosophy, and you said he he was preaching to us with the subtlety of a charging rhinoceros. <laughs> so I thought these were great, um, and uh, and obviously I've also kind of I uh, had a little bit of an insight into some of these experiences. So they're quite quite accurate, I guess, for a new person coming. Uh, and it, and you you sort of maintained quite a skepticism for quite some time. When when would you say? Um, well, tell me a bit about that. And just being around the devotees in those early stages uh, and being 
you know, still quite skeptical. Yeah, some of that happened before India. We went, John and I went to the temple in Brooklyn. Ah, okay. And that's where we saw the uh, flat out <laughs> obeisances and we heard the temple president talking about it to us as if, you know, he was just dumping this, this kind of philosophy on us. And actually later on, I happened to hear a tape of his talk to us. And I realized that what he said was not so aggressive. It was just the way he said it was like, you know, this is what you have to do. This is the truth. This is the way, you know, it was um, suffocating, I would say. A bit absolute, a bit sort of uh, <laughs> fundamental, fundamentalist kind of almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it wasn't the content so much as the delivery, I would say, that was the problem. Hmm. So, but that at that time, all my skepticism came out uh, full, full on because I could not see any validity to what the devotees were doing or why they made that drastic change in their lives to live in that monk-like way and to give up all pursuits as we know them in the, in the world. So it seemed totally irrelevant and unattractive, although it was very colorful. Mm. And um, one thing you wrote, which I thought was uh, beautiful, you said, my denial... Um, my sort of skeptical uh, heart was your armor in a way and that mm. it was protecting you. But at the same time, it was stopping you from trusting anybody or anything. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think mm. um, the heart, especially, you know, cause we're protecting the heart, isn't it? It's, it's a sort of very delicate thing, um, but it can kind of shut us off from, I guess, love or connection or intimacy or all these kind of, more beautiful things um uh so you you went to vrindavan as part of that trip so i think you were in bombay and then Prabhupada said you were asking him where you where you should go was that right yeah yeah john and i had the idea that we would do a photo essay on a quaint indian village where they don't use any modern machinery but they depend on the animals the bull and they get milk from the cows and they till the soil maybe make uh, clothes themselves from looms and so on and so forth. We thought this would be very interesting for Westerners who are so modernized and dependent on machinery. But we didn't know what village to go to. There are thousands, literally thousands and thousands of Indian villages. So we thought, well, Prabhupada, he, we have a nice relationship with him and he's traveled throughout India, so surely he can guide us to what would be the most suitable village for our project. So we asked him and uh, explained the project. And he looked at us with a mixture of gravity and amusement. And he said, you do not speak the language. Wherever you go, they will simply cheat you and steal your candles. So we were, <laughs> we were quite uh, crestfallen to hear that. And Prabhupada waited just a few moments, a few beats. And then he said, best you go to Vrindavan and you do your story there. Mm. So eventually we did that. We went to Vrindavan. And I think before you went there, you um, you did the trip up to the Himalayas, right? Was that yes. right? Yes, because it was very hot. We were trying to escape the heat of Mumbai. Mm. And so tell me a bit about that uh, that period, because you hadn't yet been to Vrindavan, which, which kind of turned out to be kind of a turning point i guess um 
and you you use the metaphor of the mountain really well i thought you know you you had to go up the mountain and then you were coming back down the mountain and you were you were having i think you said a premature pre uh, midlife crisis and you're only 21 i think <laughs> so what was that what what was kind of going through your head and um yeah well we went up and up trekking we started in a place called pokra and we followed the trails up the himalayas and every night uh we'd come to some small village where the cottages had no locks on the doors. And although there was a language barrier in one sense, the people were very welcoming to us. John had been in the Peace Corps and he was quite used to interacting with people in a very natural way. So they would welcome us in and they would share their rice and vegetables with us. And we had brought with us cashew nuts and raisins that we would share with them. So it was almost like a family atmosphere. And then the next day we would again trek up and up. And finally we came to 10,000 feet, which at that time of the year was a snow line. And we found an abandoned shed there. And we decided to rest for a few days in that shed. And we took off our backpacks, which weighed like 50 pounds. It was almost like we were levitating. It felt so light. <laughs> so, from the bottom of his backpack, John pulled out this blue paperback and he gave it to me and he said, you should read this. So that was the early edition of Bhagavad Gita as it is, by Srila Prabhupada, the bridged edition. So I sat there surrounded by these pristine mountains, snow-capped mountains, trying to understand Bhagavad Gita. And I really couldn't understand it, although I love to read, I love books. And usually I didn't have trouble understanding books, but I could not make head nor tail of this book. And yet at the same time, I had a very strong sense that this book could give me direction and values that would help me in my life. So that was a mystical experience. I couldn't explain it, but it was quite impactful. Hmm. And then, um, but nonetheless, coming back down the mountain, um, you were... Um, you, you hadn't really, so that was like a sort of, let's say, a seed, or a, uh, but still your overall mindset was a bit, um, could, how would you describe it? Were you feeling a bit unsure of what to do next? Or? Yeah, I would say confused, because on the one hand, I could see the futility of, for instance, uh, Peter Oliver, the commercial photographer. I could see the futility of his life and Eugene Smith, this world-famous photojournalist. Uh, he was elderly when I knew him, and he was quite upset that his fame was ebbing, that other younger photographers were coming up and replacing him. Mm. So these, these things that really impacted me. My, meanwhile, my brother was brilliant. He was taking college-level courses in high school, and he was very active in the political scene. He was a socialist, pushing for socialism. And that was also for him to try to make this kind of huge change in society, just like I was trying to with the civil rights movement. And society doesn't change in that way. It's a very, if it changes at all, it's a very slow, organic process. And so he felt many frustrations also in his life. And meanwhile, I saw my parents working so hard and how time gradually took away their enthusiasm and their energy. 
so it was i was just coming down that mountain i was very confused about what, what life was for what i should be doing in my life the direction uh, of lives generally you know to make them meaningful and substantial uh, it was a very empty feeling mm. and um you you saw some uh, buddhist monks on the way down as well right yeah, that was extraordinary because they weren't far away from our little shed that we had stayed at, but they were very quiet. And when we caught a glimpse of them going down the hill, I was just taken aback because they were so simple and they blended in so well with their environment. And unlike everybody I knew in my world, they didn't seem to have any material ambitions. They were happy living simply with very little and depending on their prayers, their meditations, uh, cultivating the earth to get their necessities. And I thought that was just absolutely extraordinary because I had never been exposed to that kind of uh, lifestyle or mindset. I didn't even think it would be possible, frankly. Maybe something from a thousand years ago that you might read about, <laughs> but not, not in that time and that place. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you, you put it really nicely in the book. You said uh, you wanted to learn to have the strength to live in a place of enough. Mm. And um, that is um, a kind of a real uh, blessing if, if however much we have or don't have, if we can feel content in, in what we have, isn't it? I think people are warming up to these ideas now, even in a, in a much broader way. But I think it's very, very hard for, um, you know, like I, I imagine like you were saying, you're coming down the mountain on one side. If we're going to uh, look at our career, we, we always want to um, get some uh, praise or acceptance or position or achievement or otherwise, what's the what's the point in a way? I loved uh, there was a there was a there was a brilliant quote that you said when you were a child, you asked yourself, was it worth trying if I couldn't succeed? And I could totally relate to that. It's kind of like it was a fear of trying for something because if you don't succeed or you don't win, then maybe I don't even want to try. It's almost like that. It's sort of, a <laughs> um, uh, yet at the same time, there's no guarantee, isn't it? So life is very, in many respects like that, generally speaking, very unpredictable. Um, yet at the same time, so I want, I'd love to know your thoughts on that now, because obviously that was at that time, somebody might say, well, that old thing of, it's not about the destination or the winning or the result. It's about the endeavor, the activity, the, the journey. What, what would your thoughts be now, um, on that, on that point? Well, now it's completely different because I've accepted that I'm not anything material then I'm actually a spiritual being. So now the goal is to try to realize that fact. And any little progress that I make in that direction is actual progress. What's happening in terms of my external success and failure is not really at all related to this inner journey. And the inner journey is what is profound and what will give me this contentment and this happiness rather than the apparent wins and the apparent losses externally. So it puts you on a completely different paradigm, you could say. It's the Atma paradigm. Atma meaning the soul or the spiritual essence of an individual. 
And that gives you a, just an entirely different framework to look at your life and to look at life generally. It's a, it's a total shift, which of course is a gradual process, but a very, I would say, rewarding one, a meaningful mm. one. Mm, definitely. And so um, how you, so you're coming down this mountain, young, confused, bewildered, I think, uh, when I was reading it, I could kind of remember myself at that age and feeling those feelings. They're they're huge. I think they're big feelings because, um, obviously, because we're so embodied in ourselves, and uh, you know, like this is my life. Like, is it going to be all the things I hope it will be? Um, and then you went to Vrindavan, and um, I, I've been to Vrindavan as well. It's an unusual place, a special place. There's definitely a certain atmosphere there. Tell me a bit about being there and sort of how slowly, slowly you um, maybe were softening up your guard a bit and uh, becoming a little bit more, less uh, skeptical. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I didn't, I came there, as I mentioned, as a photographer. I was not interested in the culture, what to speak of the spirituality that was not at all my interest. But from the very first morning, we arrived at midnight, and from the very first morning, I could sense that this place was somehow different from other places. People were singing as they did their activities, and even they would be doing very simple activities, but there was a kind of joy in it. And you could say also that they were very conscious of a divine presence, and their relation to that divine presence is one of love and service. And that was very much reciprocal. It wasn't just one way, but it was very much reciprocal. So the, the whole town was full of shrines, of temples, places of worship. And the people were very engaged in singing the names of God and trying to serve the pilgrims who came. So it was something truly extraordinary. I, I would follow up some ladies who went to sing in a temple every morning for three hours. And they weren't very musically inclined. And their voices weren't, you could say, exceptional. They didn't play the instruments exceptionally well. But from, from being there as an observer, I felt their sincerity. I felt the seriousness. And even it seemed to me that they were privileged, they felt privileged to be in that environment and be able to sing without all the distractions of family life and expectations and rituals that might be expected of them on the outside. So that really made me think about another dimension that perhaps I had rejected in my life simply because my parents had rejected it. There wasn't really a decision that I made myself but I grew up in an atheistic family, so I was an atheist, just as others grew up in a Jewish family or Christian family, and so they consider themselves Jewish or Christian. So I thought perhaps now is the time that I should just step back and see actually what is meaningful to me, what makes sense to me, to step away from that tradition that I had been given and, and see what actually makes sense. And certainly this other, the existence of another dimension added a piece to the puzzle that had been very much absent before that. 
Before mm. that, it was really an existential void, which is what I experienced coming down that Himalayan mountain. You know, what is the meaning? Wealth doesn't make sense. Fame doesn't make sense. Whatever you do, as you age, you know, your body becomes more and more decrepit. So what actually gives this life meaning and purpose and happiness? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, uh, you know, when we start to have those thoughts that um, material life um, may not be able to deliver on all of its promises and so on, or even if it does, it's temporary, but we don't have a, uh, an inner meaningful life. That's an even a very bleak place um, to be. Um, and yet at the same time, in and of itself, that's not a good enough reason to just believe in something just because it would be a bit terrible if there wasn't something. <laughs> um, so, um, but it seemed to be a sort of um, a sweetness or something that uh, that started to to, to capture you. I mean, I, I, you mentioned, I think you said in the book, you'd had an argument with John. You went down to the Yamuna and you sat there by yourself. Um, and you'd said, living in Vrindavan had penetrated and sweetened my whole being. And I felt kinder and elated uh, with everything. Yet still you hadn't accepted uh, everything, but there was some kind of... Um, you, you, you'd noticed a shift. Is that, would that be right? Yeah. As you mentioned about being in Vrindavan, there's something special about Vrindavan. There's some special atmosphere. And uh, living there, as we did for a month, you're kind of you're imbued with it. You breathe it in. You're in the midst of it. And it's, it's transforming. At least for me, it was transforming. The idea of having faith in something that I cannot particularly see or hear or touch or feel, and yet knowing that it's there to be seen and felt and heard and touched. So this kind of dichotomy that it, it is there and it's very real and it's so important, maybe the most important, and yet it's also beyond my central perception. So to come to terms with that, for me particularly, coming from a, a faithless background, was a huge step, and that step started in a small way in Vrindavan. But that small way, it's like you have a crack in grass in glass, and then it it grows and grows until the whole glass is. So that's what happened for me. Mm. And then um, you um, you went to Calcutta, right? Um, I think you wanted to stay in Vrindavan, but there was a you were asked to go to Calcutta to help prepare a book of um, appreciation for Prabhupada, who was the founder of the um, International Society for Krishna Consciousness, Hare Krishna movement. And um, you didn't really want to go, but you went with John. And then um, you stayed at the temple, and they expected you to take part in the, the programs that go on there, which start very early in the morning, <laughs> and, um, and so on. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, it was, you, you, you'd said, you know, that I, I didn't really want, you were polite and open to just, you know, being a good, good guest and stuff, but it wasn't something that you really wanted to take the steps to do. Um, and you also experienced some, uh, you know, there was a, a Bhagavad Gita class where, uh, it said, uh, that, uh, women were not 
as intelligent as men. And then you saw some of the older devotees, male devotees being a bit um, offhand or with, with, the, with the girls. And coming from your background, this was really, really difficult, right? Just talk me through that and, and, um, and what, yeah, did you speak to someone about it or how did you resolve it in your head? Yeah, this was a, a big shock to hear this kind of uh, male chauvinism, you could say, or patronizing way that women were spoken of. So I hope you've been enjoying the interview. Please jump straight over to part two now and hear how uh, Jean um, dealt with this situation. It was a real knock uh, to her to, because it was on some way she was so interested but at the same time this was a real kind of stumbling block so please join me over in part two and let's see um, how it worked out